This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. According to Britannica.com, British Raj, period of direct British rule over the Indian subcontinent, from 1858 until the independence of India and Pakistan in 1947. The Raj succeeded management of the subcontinent by British East India Company. After general distrust and dissatisfaction with company leadership resulted in a widespread mutiny of sepoy troops in 1857, causing the British to reconsider the structure of governance in India. The British government took possession of the company's assets and imposed direct rule. The Raj was intended to increase Indian participation in governance, but the powerlessness of Indians to determine their own future without the consent of the British led to an increasing adamant national independence movement. This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host, Palsy. You are listening to the Workers' Institute, Part 1. In today's episode, we are going to look at a small political cult. I know that when we look at cults, we normally think like 20 or more followers. But in some cases, like this one, a single person can still exert a huge amount of control over and indoctrinate a small group of followers. This week, we will be looking at the origins of the leader and how the group was formed, including the political climate during this time. Aravindan Balakrishnan, more commonly known as Bala, was born on 16 July 1940 in Kerala on the west coast of India. Bala's father was a member of the British Armed Forces. As mentioned in the introduction, India was still under British rule during this time and male members of the British colonies were enlisted into the army. Bala was the eldest son and was adored by his mother. She believed that he had special powers and would call him her black tongue as she stated that he could curse anyone with his words. It is my opinion that this would definitely have had an impact later on in his life. Apparently, he used to swear a lot and would often curse at people. This led his mother to say that he was possessed by the occult and had a black tongue. Now... She really could have thought this, or maybe she kept on telling him this in the hopes that he would stop swearing. You know, 
like my mom would threaten to wash my mouth out with soap, and she still kind of wants to to this day. In 1950, when Bala was 10 years old, his father was posted to Malay, now known as Malaysia. So the entire family relocated to Singapore. He had been a very good student in India, and this trend continued into his new school. He attended the Raffles Institution, which was the oldest school in the country. For the most part, his childhood was pretty uneventful, and he was described as a quiet young man. Bala went on to study at the University of Singapore, and it was here where he started to become more politically active. He had witnessed protests against the British and seen people fight for independence. This was during the Malayan Emergency, which was a guerrilla war fought in British Malaya between communist pro-independent fighters of the Malayan National Liberational Army, or MNLA, and the military forces of the British Empire and Commonwealth. The communists fought to win independence for Malaya from the British Empire and to establish a socialist economy, while the Commonwealth forces fought to combat communism and protect British economic and colonial interests. The conflict was called the Anti-British National Liberation War by the MNLA, but an emergency by the British, as London-based insurers would not have paid out in instances of civil wars. Considering the climate and the times in which he found himself, Bala started viewing Britain as a fascist state. Bala would gain citizenship in Singapore in 1960. In 1963, the British Council afforded Bala a scholarship to study at the London School of Economics, known as LSE. Despite his feelings about Britain, he packed up his life in Singapore, boarded a ship and immigrated to the UK. At LSE, he almost immediately became very involved in left-wing politics at the school. He studied Marxist communism and one of his teachers was Ralph Miliband, who was a Marxist academic and had even written books and papers on Marxism and socialism. I found a very simplified explanation on Investopedia.com. Marxism posits that the struggle between social classes, specifically between the bourgeois or capitalists and the proletariat or workers, defines economic relations in a capitalist economy and will inevitably lead to revolutionary communism. Marx wrote that the power relationships between the capitalists and the workers were inherently exploitative and would inevitably create class conflict. He believed that this conflict would ultimately lead to a revolution in which the working class would overthrow the capitalist class and seize control of the economy. At this time, there were quite a few communist protests in and around London. Bala would participate by joining sit-ins at his campus or protest at government buildings. By 1967, he left school to concentrate all of his efforts into politics. He even started referring to himself as Comrade Bala. He started giving very passionate speeches. 
At 5 foot 3 inches tall, with curly black hair and wide-rimmed square glasses, he wasn't very large in stature or particularly good-looking, but he was said to draw crowds as he was very charismatic. He became quite well-known within the left-wing circles. In 1968, the Communist Party of England was formed, which would eventually become the Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain, Marxist-Leninist, and Bala was made a senior member of this early party. Sociologygroup.com states that, quote, Leninism can be explained as a political theory that works towards the organization of a vanguard party, which is revolutionary and achieves to attain dictatorship over the proletariat in order to establish socialism. This vanguard party's aim was supposed to provide the proletariat consciousness about their class in order to destroy capitalism in Imperial Russia. He knew that imperialism was caused by capitalism and it was the exorbitant point of capitalism. Communism is a higher form than that of capitalism. It was proposed that the revolution by the workers had to occur first in economically and industrially advanced countries. End quote. Around this time, Bala gained special interest in a sub-branch of Marxism called Maoism, which was kicked off by Chairman Mao Zedong. According to BBC.UK, Mao was a Chinese communist leader and founder of the People's Republic of China. He was responsible for the disastrous policies of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Bala was impressed by the Great Leap Forward policy, and according to Investopedia.com, the Great Leap Forward was a five-year economic plan executed by Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party. It began in 1958 and was abandoned in 1961. The goal was to modernize the country's agricultural sector using communist economic ideologies. Instead of stimulating the country's economy, the Great Leap Forward resulted in mass starvation and famine. It's estimated that between 30 and 45 million Chinese citizens died due to famine, execution and forced labor, along with massive economic and environmental destruction. The Great Leap Forward remains the largest episode of non-wartime mass killing in human history and a clear example of the failures of socialism and economic central planning. It was also in 1968, when 24-year-old Malaysian Siti Aisha Abdul Wahab moved to England with her fiancé. She had gone to the UK on a scholarship to study quantity surveying at LSE. I know this isn't a super well-known profession, so I found this explanation on asaqs.co.za. Quantity surveyors are the financial consultants of the construction industry whose training and expertise qualify them to advise on cost and contractual arrangements and to prepare contract documents. It was at LSE where Aisha would come across Bala and his impassioned speeches and she became enthralled with him. Those who were members of the party at the time would recall how strict Bala was. If you missed or were late for a meeting for any reason, he would comment on it and make you feel as if you let the group down. 
he made all of the members start each meeting with a clenched fist salute to Chairman Mao. During meetings, he would talk passionately about the inevitable uprising of the workers and how they would overthrow the fascist capitalist Western states. Bala would gain quite a few followers, and although some of them were local, the majority of them came from Malaysia and Singapore. I can kind of see why this would happen, as they had all probably just gone through the conflict between their home countries and the UK, and they most likely saw the UK as the great enemy. Which is also strange to me, since they all ended up moving to the UK anyway. In 1970, 24-year-old Shonda Patni, an Indian-born Tanzanian who had been studying at LSE, joined the Communist Party of England. Shonda was smitten with Bala, and it seems like the feeling was mutual because the pair of them married in 1971 and moved in together. Shonda's disabled younger sister Shoba also moved in with them. Bala remained very much politically active and would regularly attend demonstrations where he would wave Mao Zedong banners and address the crowd on his views. In 1972, Bala decided that he wanted to live in a way which reflected his beliefs, so he and Shonda moved to a home in Acre Lane in South London. Here they set up an open living collective where members of the party were free to come and live with them. Bala's Maoist views were starting to create conflict between the other communists and him. He was expelled from the party in 1974 for splittist activities and created his own faction called the Workers' Institute. He even started his own publication called the South London Workers' Bulletin. In this publication, he became very critical of his former comrades. Bala had gone from being well-respected within these circles to ostracized and even mocked. He then started recruiting students in and around London, mostly those with communist beliefs. Bala invited the new recruits to come live with him and Shonda in their South London home. He did request that they donate any money that they made to him for common expenses such as food, rent and the publications. One of those members was Aisha, who had subsequently left her fiancé and reportedly threw her engagement ring into the Thames, turned her back on her family and moved in with the Balikrishnans. Okay, for the most part, all of this is pretty political. But... If you look at some of these early practices, you can already see some red flags. Firstly, Aravindan Balakrishnan is a very charismatic speaker and has a tendency to get people to listen to his point of view. Secondly, he convinces people to turn on their loved ones and come and live at their commune. And thirdly, he gets them to donate all of their income to the commune. Lastly, he has begun to create his us-versus-them mentality, namely the Workers' Institute versus the fascist capitalist everyone else. At one point, there were around 25 people living at the commune. Most were very highly educated and intelligent women, and a few men, all of the same caliber. 
Many of them were on their way to have some great careers according to what they were studying. So I asked myself, why would they join this group? Then I focused on the women and the times. You see, back then, one of Bala's tenets was that each person needs to be paid in accordance with the work they do. Now, as a woman, in a time where men got paid more for doing the same work women did, I can kind of see why this would be enticing. There was also high unemployment, huge strikes and massive inflation rates in the UK at this time. So joining a party who spoke about having jobs would seem pretty inviting. In 1974, after a fight with police, Bala was committed to Alban's mental hospital for two days. I couldn't find why they had committed him, but he would go on to tell his followers that he had purposefully done this and got committed to better understand the London's fascist prison complex. He uses fascist a lot. I'm going to mention a few of the female followers outside of Aisha and Shanda who joined in the mid to late 70s, as they will all become important in the story. Just a trigger warning here, I will be talking about suicide, so if this will in any way be triggering to you, please skip over the next 10 seconds or so. Sean Davies was born and raised in Tarragon, Wales. The daughter of a doctor, she was said to have lived a privileged life and always had the best of everything. Being from an upper-class family, she would go horse riding and they would often summer holiday in the Mediterranean. At the age of seven, she attended Malverne and then went on to Cheltenham Ladies College, which is ranked as one of the top all-girls schools in England. Despite her privileged background, she was always known to be very kind and loved to share. When Sean was 16 years old, her father tragically took his own life. This had a profound impact on the young lady, who was far away from home. Sally Unwin, who was Sean's best friend at the time, told the BBC that Sean had become very withdrawn and internalised her pain. After school, she went on to study at Abbotsworth University. She was very close with her mother and would frequently call and visit her. She was a very beautiful woman. Once she got her degree, she enrolled for her PhD at LSE. It's here where Martin Clark, her boyfriend at the time, took her to one of Bella's talks. They both became followers and started spreading pamphlets around. Sean would go on to move in with the group above the bookstore. O. Kar Eng also joined the group. Sadly, there is not very much known about her past, or even how she came to join the group. We do, however, know that she was a nurse who had gone to the UK from Malaysia to participate in a nursing course in the 1960s and joined Bala by the 1970s. Josephine Herival, who preferred to go by Josie, was an Irish violinist who studied at the Royal College of Music in London. Josie was the daughter of famed John Herival, and in case that name does not sound familiar, he was one of the Bletchley Park codebreakers who helped Britain and its allies win World War II by breaking the Enigma Code. Josie's boyfriend had taken her to one of Bala's talks 
and she, like the others, became enthralled by him and became a member immediately. She was expelled from school a short time later for wearing a Chairman Mao badge. Her parents were also not thrilled by the idea of their daughter becoming a communist, which led to a massive falling out, where they even wrote her out of their will. There were three more women, one named Leanne, one named Cindy, and one named Denise, but I haven't found very much information on them. All of the followers slept on the floor, men in one room and women in the other in the upstairs apartment. The one rule that he did have at this point was that male and female members were not allowed to have sex. Yep, we are starting to see some more cult-like rules where the leader of the group controls followers by separating people into groups and having rules over who they can and cannot sleep with. Downstairs from this apartment was a shopfront in which they opened a bookstore decorated with Chinese flags and posters of Mao. They sold all sorts of literature pertaining to their political views. When the followers were not at home, they would wear badges with Mao's face printed on them and carry around his red booklet while working in the bookstore or everywhere they went outside, basically. The neighbours in Acre Lane didn't like the group at all. They were said to be rude, dismissive and wouldn't interact with them. There was one incident on the 1st of February 1976 where one of the neighbours was having a party in their flat. It seems like this party was getting a bit loud or going on late, but Bala was getting quite upset by it. Instead of calling the police because, you know, they are the fascist capitalist state. He went to the neighbor's place brandishing a meat cleaver. An argument ensued on the balcony and Bala in a fit of anger tried to hack off this guy's hand which was holding onto the banister at the time. Luckily this person moved their hand in time but as Bala would later tell it he had struck with such a blow that the cleaver had gotten embedded in the railing. Obviously, the neighbours called the police and Bala was sent to jail for just short of two months. The way he told it, he was heroically fighting a battle against the fascist agents. Mao died on 9 September 1976 and the bookstore became almost like a shrine-like museum to him, which they called the Mao Zedong Memorial Centre. Bala also changed the name of his movement to the Workers' Institute of Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong Thought. Bala started aggressively pushing his propaganda that China would invade the UK by 1980. When I heard this, it kind of reminded me of some cult leaders who prophesy the end of days. He also claimed that the British Fascist State, or BFS as he called it, wanted to get rid of him. He claimed that he had narrowly escaped an assassination attempt in August 1971, while he was in a taxi. According to him, the BFS had put a death ray in the meter of a taxi, which was set to blast him when he leaned forward to pay. I know, it sounds very science fiction meets James Bond, but regardless, 
The passenger who was with him opted to pay the fare instead of him. So instead of the ray hitting him in the head, it got him in the chest instead and he survived. He showed a mark on his chest as proof, but it was later said that it just looked like a normal boil on his chest. The Workers' Institute was now on the authorities' radar, and some of them would get arrested a couple of times. The Singaporean authorities even stated that Bala and his followers were plotting to overthrow Singapore's leader, Lee Kuan Yew, and revoked his citizenship in 1977. In March of 1978, the bookstore was raided by police as they suspected that there were drugs on the premises. The followers who were working there were not having any of it and a massive fight broke out. When the police finally gained control over the situation, they continued their search but didn't find any drugs on site. They did, however, arrest nine members for assaulting police officers. One of these members was Bala, and the other of these was Sean. When the nine members were on trial, they constantly shouted, Long live Mao! Death to the British fascist state! Victory to world revolution! As you can imagine, this did not go down well in court, and they were all sentenced to several months in jail. I wondered why they only got a few months. So on inbrief.co.uk, it says that in these cases, the defendant faces a sentence of up to six months imprisonment and or a fine of up to £5,000. Following the sentencing, a number of followers left the group. While in prison, it is said that Bala became even more radical in his beliefs. But to me, given what happens going forward... I think he pretty much began to form his ideas for a cult. I'll leave it up to you to decide as things unfold. While he was serving time, he came up with two major rules. The first was that the new world could only be built and led by women. It has been speculated that he did this because he wanted to eliminate the threat of having male opposition in his group. And there were a few men who had helped in leadership roles while he was in prison. I kind of tend to agree with this speculation. The second was that upon his release, they needed to go completely underground in an attempt to escape the attention of the fascist state. In my mind, I would think that those females who were imprisoned at the time and had some distance from the group would maybe rethink their beliefs and see that it was not good for them. But no, in fact, imprisonment had only strengthened their belief in Bala and made them trust those outside of the group even less. They only trusted Bala. The nine members were released in 1979 and by 1980 there were only eight followers left. They were all women. They were Bala's wife Shonda, Sean, Cindy, Leanne, Aisha, Josie, Denise, and O. And in case you were wondering, Shonda's sister Shoba is still around, but there's almost no real information about her involvement in things to come. 
The women in the group needed to cut off all ties with their loved ones by saying that they were fascist agents. And if they weren't fascist agents themselves, then they were definitely in contact with these agents. They moved into another house which was provided to them by the state. Bala also forbade any forms of communication to anyone outside of the group. He did, however, let a few of his trusted followers leave the house to work. I'm assuming this was to ensure that they brought in money to the group because Bala didn't work. Aisha worked in a department store. O was a nurse. According to the book, The Girl in the Shadows, My Life in a Cult, written by Katie Morgan Davies, Cindy and Leanne also worked outside of the group. I don't know exactly what they did though. Those who had outside jobs were told to leave the house in pairs to ensure that they keep each other safe from fascist agents who were always around ready to inflict violence on the members of the group. Here is another example of a leader creating fear of the outside world. In this case, having the members fear for their lives whenever they were outside the safety of the leader's home. And those who did not have jobs? Well, they were made to serve Bala, who now also referred to himself as AB, hand and foot. They even had to turn his shower on and off for him. And apparently, it was a great honor to be chosen to turn his shower on and off. As far as I can gather, it seems like all of the female followers were waiting on him. But Shonda got special treatment as the wife of the leader. He began to refer to the group as the Communist Collective, or CC for short. As we get further into the story, we will see how much he loves his acronyms, also using everyday acronyms but changing their meaning to suit his message. He doubled down on his doctrine that the Chinese were on the verge of invading the UK and that they would be safe as long as they followed him. He even told his followers that the Chinese military had invented a tiny type of technology that could monitor people's speech and thoughts, so his followers needed to keep their thoughts in line with his teachings at all times. This is an example of how a cult leader chips away at followers' critical thought while keeping them in line by ensuring that they focus only on the doctrine being taught to them. It seems like the women in the group were becoming very competitive for Bala's attention. This was bolstered by his new rule that the women could not spend too much time together. He would claim that they were forming an anti-party clique and then they would be punished. He would encourage them to start snitching on one another. By this time, the group had pretty much fallen off the authorities' radar, and they had not really heard or seen from the group out and about protesting, so they assumed that the group had disbanded. The collective would move from place to place around South London in an effort to evade the perceived enemies but would eventually settle in a house in Brixton. The followers would start to refer to one another as Comrade. So Aravindan was Comrade Bala, his wife was Comrade Shonda, and so on. Just as an interesting aside, according to rbth.com, in Russian, Tovarish initially meant 
not friend, but brother in trade. The word comes from the root tova, meaning goods, and tovarish was a partner in commercial activities, the one you traded goods with. After the revolution, the Bolsheviks quickly adopted Torovish as a universal form to address for their own, i.e. the communist people, and the English people took that up as comrade. Then something happened that would further transform this group from a political party, which by this time they really weren't anyway, into a proper cult. In 1980, Shonda became severely ill. It got so bad that she ended up in the emergency room and was immediately admitted to hospital with complications around diabetes. Shonda would end up spending many weeks in hospital and with Shonda out of the house and Shoba spending a lot of time visiting her sister, things changed in the house and not for the better. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. Also, please invite your family and friends to listen too. If you are listening on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. You can also leave a comment if you wish. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that I sent you. This week, I would like to say gracias to my listeners in Bolivia. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.